I have absolutely no idea what we're doing here, or what I'm doing here, or what this place is about, but I am determined to enjoy myself. Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome to episode 22 of the Appendix N Book Club. And this is the first episode in our Appendix N Book Club Extra Credit series. And we'll be discussing Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique. My name is Jeff, and with me is the corpse-loving Hoy. (laughs) Only on alternate Wednesdays. (laughs) And we have our very special guest with us, Andy Markham. What's up, guys? Glad to be on the extra credit episode. Woo-hoo. Yeah. So for those of you who don't know the DM slash judge extraordinaire, Andy Markham, he runs Andy Action Fulfillment. And Andy Action Fulfillment does all of the distribution. Is that correct? For Burning Wheel and Stormlord Publishing and some others. It's more uh, warehousing and fulfillment. I'm not a distributor. But yeah, I do uh, gotcha. Burning Wheel. I do Mouse Guard, Swords and Strongholds, Torchbearer, Tenra Bancho Zero, a bunch of other cool clients. Melsonian Arts Council, who does the Undercroft zine. Great stuff. Very cool. And you are also like the DM judge extraordinaire. How many week, How many days a week are you running games, either in person or online, on a weekly basis? Uh, quite a few, depending on whether my wife is touring or not. Uh, it's either three or five games a week. Wow. Up to five games a week that you're running. That's wild. It's been a dry spell for the holidays. Isn't it always feast or famine? <laughs> there you go. Um, and I love, you know, Melsonian Arts Council. That's definitely lovely and weird. It seems like you have a, a bent towards the slightly weirder games that you're distributing or uh, uh, fulfill, doing the fulfillment. Absolutely. Like. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm definitely... Uh, Old school weirdness personified, especially in my gaming proclivities. So, Andy, what is your what was your introduction to Dungeons and Dragons and the Appendix N? Summer seventy eight uh, day camp. I was seven. The uh, older kids uh, allowed uh, allowed me to join their D anD D game. It was white box uh, with the little brown books, and I saw the Holmes basic blue cover. And mixed in there were the Arduin Grimoire tomes, which Ooh. I kind of cut my teeth on. I had no idea that there was a difference between the little brown books and the other little brown books. And so David A. Hargrave was sort of my introduction to the hobby. And then, uh, you know, I was eagerly waiting the Dungeon Master's Guide in 79 and just been running games ever since. In the uh, early 90s, I started gaming in New York City with Luke Crane and our AD&D group eventually uh, house ruled into his uh, burning wheel system. And I was sort of one of the earlier playtesters and long-term campaign players on that. And uh, I guess back in maybe 2012, I started you know, back into gaming full, full bore. And, um, I went deep into the OSR and that's when I was uh, introduced to DCC, which is near and dear to my heart. And that's mostly what you're running in your weekly games, right? Actually, no, um, BX is my system of choice. Um, I run a lot. I mean, 
DCC has a lot of BX leaning to it. I'd actually never done ascending armor class until I uh, ran into DCC. But really, yeah, BX D and D I think is sort of the perfect Fight club. Yeah, <laughs> no doubt. Right. Wait, hold on, we're not supposed to talk about that. Uh, <laughs> uh, yes, yeah, BX I think is the perfect D and D chassis. It's sort of clean. You can sort of uh, tack onto it, or you know, house rule it to death. And but I do run a lot of AD and D. Uh, and uh, of course, DC and TCC and MCC, yeah, for sure. And so, what was your? Were you aware? I mean, you talked about getting the Dungeon Masters Guide when it first came out. Were you aware of Appendix N at that point, or you know, was it not till later? Or? No, I mean, I was eight years old when it came out. I, I, I mostly probably looked at the pictures of the Aaron Yes or something like that. <laughs> right, right. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I think it was. Uh, what was the the LBB supplement? gods demigods and heroes is that the mm-hmm. one yep yep uh, that's where i that's sort the of one with- yeah i got all these names you know uh, mythological names and, and some other literary names in my mind and, and it was more just sort of reading them in that book and then of course when deities and demigods came out uh that's when i sort of went into lovecraft and you know i, I read Moorcock, and i was a uh, a Tolkien obsessed fanboy for years i have a, a Tolkien tattoo that i got in the early 90s that type of thing um, yeah, but and I was a Lord of the Rings framed uh, image right behind you too. Oh yeah, well. that's right. Actually, a yeah, gift from right. uh, Burning Wheel Headquarters. Yeah, right. Nice. So I think uh, Andy, you and I are roughly contemporaries. It seems to me that many of us who are sort of maybe the second wave of D and D players uh, actually came to Appendix N not through A D and D, but through the through deities and demigods, like all those weird evocative illustrations in like the Lovecraft chapter Definitely. or the Mulnipony chapter. Mm-hmm. Um, that seems to be where a lot of us sort of pick that up. Yeah. And we'll, then, we'll, we'll, just thank, start, we'll thank James M. Ward and Robert J. Koontz and Errol Otis and all those knuckleheads. Right, right. <laughs> so did, which of those sort of uh, threads did you pick up on the earliest? Was it Lovecraft? Was it It was fa- It was actually Fafford and the Grey Mouser. I was just uh, really attracted to – the, the weird images there. And then I started reading the Lankmar books, I guess, in uh, late middle school or high school. Right, right. And that's all the Janela Jacquez illustrations yeah. in the Lankmar chapter. Such yeah. great work. Yeah. Right, right. I was also a big Judges Guild collector. Jeff and I share this. So through our, yeah. through my uh, early gaming life, uh, you know, Janelle's work, uh, you know, factors prominently in my interpretation of what I see as, you know, mm-hmm. fantasy art, you know? Mm-hmm. Oh, Definitely absolutely. that sort of grungy, rough around the edges, not the very clean stuff that we see today. I uh, love what do they call it booger art. Well, I guess that's more like the uh, LBB books were yeah. uh, booger art, but yeah, Jan- Janelle is a step a step beyond that for sure. But yeah, the yeah. simple black and white line drawings for sure. Yeah, fantastic. So what we've got today is Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique, and this paperback was published in 1970 by adult by the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. It's number 16 in the Ballantine Adult Fantasy series. And it's got this really uh, super evocative George Barr cover. We've got this uh, sorceress, although none of the the necromancers in Zothique, I believe, were women um, in, in the story, at least. But here we've got this cool sorceress, and she's uh, she's got these like white eyes, and she's like I guess scrying on some kind of a ship over her burning brazier. And the same image was also used as the album cover for the band Blood Ceremony for their 2008 release. If you don't know that band, they're great. I highly recommend checking out Blood Ceremony. Yeah, it's really good sort of doom prog. It's weirdness for sure. And they, they yeah. say on this, uh, at least on this uh, Discogs page, that the, the cover painting is entitled Sorceress Conjuring. 
Ooh. Oh, there you yeah. go. It's a beautiful, beautiful image. Yeah. One thing we actually haven't mentioned is, uh, Andy, that you're actually a uh, quite accomplished musician and you've been playing and touring for years. Is that just gaming? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's yeah, in, a, in a former life, uh, I was a rock star. We'll leave it at that. <laughs> right. Uh, did your, did, they, did your uh, gaming have any influence on your music? Uh, no, but we did game on the tour bus a lot, which, right. you know, the main thing that, that touring allows you is just free time. You know, it's a lot of hurry up and wait, a lot of, especially when you're touring in the Midwest or the Deep South, there's a lot of time in between destinations. And uh, man, we just played tons of AD&D on the tour bus for sure. There you go. And you were dungeon, dungeon mastering on the bus? Always. All right, so it's like a predecessor to the Goodman Games Road Tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. My van's been paint, painted uh, with wizard iconography since, you know, uh, Joseph Goodman was, uh, I don't know, swaddling somebody's diapers or something. <laughs> All right. All right. So I am excited to talk to you about this book. But before we do, let's look at our Hygaxian word of the day. Idolin. Idolin. And Idolin is a specter or phantom. And the reason that I chose this particular word, because there are lots and lots of words from this collection that could very easily have been used, lots of uh, uh, Hygaxian language all throughout. And the reason I chose this one is it's actually found in the title of one of the coolest short stories in the collection, The Dark Idolin. And it's also featured in the text at two points. On page 140, it says, So, after this, there was silence in the hall where Namira sat before the Eidolon, and the flames burned darkly with changeable colors in the skull-shapen lamps. And then it appears in its plural form as Idola on page 188. They were mere phantasms, multiple Idola, that he sent forth and withdrew into himself at will. So, Andy, I understand you also have a word of the day that you would like to submit as well. It was so hard to choose. I mean, there are so many purple flowery words that uh, Smith uses in his short stories. Um, I had it narrowed down to about seven. Um, (laughs) I'll read them out real quick, and then I'll tell you the one that I picked. Odalisk, Objurgations, Cacinations, Poltroonery, Gymnosophic, Obliquitous, Sybaritic, Empuse and Fessininely, all words that I had not heard before. Sort of and that bold. doesn't even include the two that Hoy was considering as well. Right. What uh, were the two you're thinking about, uh, Hoy? Ceremint, which appears, I think, is the most used word out of all the weird <laughs> words in there, and which means grave clothes or shroud. Ooh, I like that and, one. Uh, uh, actually, Fessininely is a great word, though, because I've never seen that word before. And then there was one other, but I forget what it was. But uh, <laughs> I, I definitely vote for uh, – for, um, Ceremony uh, as the most popularly used word in there, but I want to say idolon is interesting or idolon because I think he uses it sort of incorrectly in the story, but in it, on purpose because it means phantom, right, or or, or spirit. Mm-hmm. But in that in that story, he also uses it to sort of indicate it's an idol, the statue yeah. of the demon god. So he's using it incorrectly, but on purpose, I think, because it, it kind of gives both meanings. Interesting. He plays with language a lot. I think. I think it was actually that idol was sort of a spirit inf- or demonically infused idol. So yeah, I think you're right. It was a pur- purposeful choice. Yeah. yeah. So Andy, of those seven words, which one did you end up going with? I got to go with fessinely. It means scurrilous or given to coarse language or obscene. I mean, that just sums Ooh. it up. Sums up Zophie in its debauched uh, glory. 
This is the longest list. I've literally made, I think, about 60 or 70 words that I sort of was able to figure out from context, but didn't know at first glance out of any of the Appendix N books that I've read so far. <laughs> um, and just scroll, scroll, scroll. I mean, I can scroll like three times on this page. And so I think that without a doubt, this was a huge influence both um, in terms of being one of the early sort of dying earth genre books, mm-hmm. but also in terms of the sheer amount of vocabulary being a big influence on Jack Vance's dying earth work. Mm-hmm. Um, Undoubtedly, although Jack Vance is clearly um, smoother with dialogue. He's got more humorous dialogue. And um, Clark Ashton Smith does have a sense of humor, but it's bone dry. Yeah. You know? uh-huh. <laughs> so that's that's when I would think something that jumped out at me, it, aside from just even the content of the stories. That's, you know, just as a matter of style. Great. Thank you, Hoy. That's a really great point. So let's head on over to the library and discuss the book itself. So, Andy, what are your thoughts on Clark Ashton Smith's Zothique? Well, first of all, um, you know, I love these short stories. They're really prose poems. Um, he, you know, he's, he's very ornate uh, in his language choices, and there's a lyricism to it that appeals to me so much. In fact, you know, I'd read this so long ago that when it was time to reread them for the podcast, I took great pleasure in going on to YouTube and sort of listening to read-alongs as I would read the paperback. And, you know, mm. hearing them read back to me, they're, they're so musical and so um, lyrical that, that that added another layer of enjoyment for me that I didn't even see coming. So I highly recommend that to anyone who's going to dive in for the first time. And you're a huge Clark Ashton Smith fan in general, not even just with Zothique. Yeah, I'm, I'm like one of those freaky collector types. Nothing super fancy or expensive, just sort of like all the things that I can get, mm-hmm. you know? Um, yeah. But this is this particularly uh, wonderful setting, Zothique. And it has this awesome map, this hand-drawn map. Um, it's actually drawn by Lynn Carter in the beginning of this book, which I love. It could so easily be a campaign map for any RPG campaign. And, yeah, uh, no doubt. It was hard to pick, uh, you know, which short story was my favorite. Uh, there's sort of, you know, the big ones from this are The Empire of the Necromancers, which I believe was the first of the Zothic tales. I also really, really loved The Master of the Crabs. Was a, was, I was a big fan of that one. And, and uh, Hoy, you mentioned that his, his humor was bone dry, but not in the voyage of King Uvaran, which is an absolutely hysterical uh, short story. Right, has outright straight-up jokes in that one, which is not the case in some of the other stories, which I think, um, especially it's one of my favorite passages, about the crown, uh, which is is sort of the centerpiece of the story. And then um, it says, uh, which had conferred upon the king, upon him a dreadful majesty in the eyes of beholders. Also, it served to conceal the lamentable increase of an early baldness. (laughs) (laughs) It's really good. What's the name of the bird? Like the Golgaba bird? Golgaba bird, yeah. It's almost like a Dr. Seuss story. but The Gazolba bird. Gazolba. It's very Seussian. You're right. (laughs) But yes, so I think you just said the the magic word there, Hoy, necrophilia. There is a whole lot of necrophilia found (sighs) within these pages. So much mummy fucking. <laughs> <laughs> well said. <laughs> yeah, I, I really, I, I had to admit, I was really not expecting that. I had not read any Clark Ashton Smith prior to this. Uh, Hoy, had you read Clark Ashton Smith before this? Um, way back in the day, because of um, X two, right, Castle Amber, right. So I read the Averroin stories, but I had never read any of the um, Zothique stories up to okay. this point. So this is new to me. Clark Ashton Smith himself was not new, but this is definitely new to me. And is Averroin rife with necrophilia too, or is that special to Zothique? Um, there is that Colossus that they build out of all the corpse parts. 
Well, there's, there's, there's so much to be said here. First of all, I forgot to mention X2 and Castle Amber in my, you know, how I got into gaming and into Clark Ashton Smith, blah, blah, blah. But, and actually, a French speaking person told me how to pronounce it. It's, it's Avarwanya, but I always called it Avaroin for my entire adult life until like last year. But uh, it's curious that until the Zothique stories, he, Smith used the term necromancy sort of very fast and loose as just sort of generic or general uh, sorcery or mm-hmm. summoning, conjuring. And then in uh, the Colossus of Elernia, the story which featured on the cover of Castle Amber, which is a great Aerolotus picture, there's some serious straight up necromancy going on. And then, but I don't even think they even really call it necromancy. But then it, once we come to Zothique, it's just necromancers doing mec- necromancery things all the time. And it's fantastic. Anything you can do with a corpse appears in this book. That's <laughs> oh my god, corpse or body parts. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, there's this, uh, and actually, I, I even wrote down a little um, a quote here. Yeah, it's not for the meek for sure. Yeah. yeah, so there's a moment where these two necromancers. This is in the Empire of the Necromancers, which is actually probably my favorite of the story. So we can go through our favorites in a moment. Mm-hmm. I think that's my vote for my favorite. Matt but Moore in, and Sadosma, do it. <laughs> yes. So Matt Moore and Sadosma, um, they are. So yeah, let, let's actually let's just discuss that story for a second. So Matt Moore and Sadosma are these two necromancers from Knot. And they have – and not is where like all the necromancers all hang out and party, I guess. Right. Uh, that's the where other half from. of the island is the cannibals. That's yeah. true. Half, half cannibal on one side and necromancers on the other. On the other. Yeah. yeah. So these two necromancers decided to come to the mainland and bring their necromancy with them. People in the big city, they were not having any of this, so they kicked the necromancers out. So these two necromancers are just traveling south to find some nice little kingdom of their own. As you do. Along the way, they right. find they find a dead they find a dead camel. Right. Um, They're like the Hope and Crosby of necromancers. Yeah. And what's <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and there's so many dromedaries. There are like camel references left and right. Right. <laughs> and what I thought was really kind of cute, though, is like you you just picture these like necromancers as being like super evil or whatever, and like they resurrect this camel. And then the one necromancer says to the other one, oh, you're the elder brother. You can have this one. He's like, oh, well, thank you. And he like gets on the dead camel and they start riding off. But shortly thereafter, they find another dead camel and they raise that one too. By the way, this is is as nice as they get. That's it's all downhill from there. (laughs) (laughs) And so they finally get to this, uh, this kingdom that is just decimated. There's nothing left. And they start raising up all of these corpses left and right. But primarily the, the Kings, uh, and, and the, the former emperors of this great kingdom. But one of the things they do is they also start, um, they also start re- not resurrecting is not the right word. Uh, reanimating. Yes. Re-animating. They start reanimating some of the ladies as well. And it says on page 49, those that were fairest whom the plague and the worm had not ravaged over much, they took for their layman's and made to serve their necrophiliac lust. Oh yeah. He went straight for it. It's not even implied. No. It is right there in the text for everybody to read. Yeah, Smith had some time on his hands, thank goodness. Right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and and we can get into why that was my favorite story in a moment. Uh, but what what were your guys' favorite stories in this collection? Hmm. I guess yeah, and Andy, you've, Andy, you've already shared yours. You, you basically said Empire of the Necromancers and the Master of Crabs, right? I might have to say Isle of Tortures, but I don't know. I like them all. Go ahead. Oh, that um, one's great. They're, they're all a lot of fun. I let's see. I like the Voyage of Yvorin. I don't think it's the best story, but it is the funniest, as we talked about earlier. But some of them actually come across as uh, straight D and D adventures. Uh, the Weaver in the Vault very much has that feeling. The Tomb Spawn, 
I think is that one. Um, the last hieroglyph is also quite funny. That's the one with the uh, sort of borderline competent astro- uh, astrologist. And then he's, you know, led to his fate. Yeah, he's like a low-level D&D adventure who just gets sucked into the wrong kind of astronomy. Right, right. And I was noticing, um, you know, we're talking about Clark Ashton Smith as sort of a sort of very unique creature, but I do believe he has influences. I feel like there's some Dord Dunsany influences, especially in Zithra. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's definitely the decadent poets, you know, like Rambo and Baudelaire are definitely influences. Um, and then maybe William Hope Hodgson and obviously Edgar Allan Poe also. I think sure. those, yeah, those are, I think are some influences. And then conversely, he's sort of a, uh, then a point where he then influences people like Fritz Leiber and Jack Vance, uh, Michael Shea, Mike Mignola for, for Hellboy form, uh, fame very much. And definitely. Then, and then maybe actually Andy, you're of this gaming generation. Do you think that he influenced uh, Takumal and uh, Empire Petal Throne? I mean, he must have. There's such an ornate detail in that world setting. Uh, And it's so uh, reminiscent of at least the stories in Zothique and the the descriptions of the decadent kingdoms within and and sort of essentially uh, these emperors with nothing but time on their hands to do all this debauched behavior with endless resources at their Mm -hmm. disposal. Uh, It's very Tecmel. Right. These these guys definitely make, uh, you know – Caligula look like, you know, just like an amateur. Oh, Absolutely. no doubt. Yeah. Another one of my favorite turns of phrase within the book was uh, a feverish tide of funeral orgies. <laughs> there are so many orgies. Yeah. And that's from the death of Alotha, which is, I also think, a pretty great story. And in the death of Alotha, basically um, what, I, <laughs> what happens in the death of Alotha is this handmaiden, Alotha, has died. And what they do in the city where – where she died is to celebrate any death. They have giant orgies for multiple days. And the handmaiden had previously been the handmaiden to the queen and the queen's lover is out of town, but he strolls back into town in the middle of these funeral orgies has no idea that, um, that Elotha has died. And she's his former lover. also. And she was his former lover. And he sees her lying dead atop this table in the center of this giant orgy but the thing is, they used to do a lot of role play when they were lovers beforehand, and she would often play dead for him as a way to kind of arouse him to get him very sexually excited. Yeah. So he sees her laying there and just assumes that she's playing dead for him. <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, that's a, that's a recurring theme, actually. Sort of, um, sort of cause death cosplay. Um, mm-hmm. Was it Mortilla, which is a short, a much shorter of, of the stories? Is this? Uh, essentially, spoiler alert: It's a woman who poses as a lamia in uh, in a in a graveyard uh, for for passersby who fetishize sex in graveyards. And actually, my that wasn't my take of it. My take was that she actually was a, the the lamia. That part of her part of the reveal of her being somebody posing to be one was actually oh, part crap. of the, the the lamia curse, because basically this character. He's living such a debauched life that the regular sex and drugs and wine and food, it's not enough for him anymore. He wants sex that's going to bring him onto the brink of death. Mm-hmm. And that's why he goes out seeking the Lamia. And he finds her in this graveyard and he begs for her kisses. But her, but the kiss of a, uh, of a Lamia on, an, on a mortal man is forbidden because it will instantly cause – or not instantly. It just says it will bring about his death. He begs that's for it right. and begs for it. Finally, he gives she gives him the kiss and she and, bites him. Yeah. And like and there's like a there's like a bite on his neck. 
Uh, but then the very next day, it's like suddenly he decides he needs to leave town on business, which made no sense to me in that moment. Well, in that case, but then it starts to make sense. Money. Yeah. 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 But it starts to make sense. So because when he goes to the town, he finds this woman who That's he right. discovers has been posing as her. And then he's so bereft by this realization that right. he takes his own life. Which is the curse manifesting. Which is the curse manifesting. And after he dies, he then kind of starts repeating this thing. And it's in the, the implication to me is that it's repeated on kind of an infinite loop. Right. Yeah. They they repeat the same prose verbatim. Right. Mm-hmm. That's really interesting. It's almost it's like the last five paragraphs appear right in the middle. So as you say, it's verbatim. It's, it's so it's actually it's sort of a technical feat and sort of a metafiction there, which is yeah. not appearing in some of the other stories. And it's not just that he's coming back thematically. It's literally mm-hmm. coming back to the same point. And yeah. that's, that's a very unusual, I think, in sort of pulp fiction. So I find it strange and many people find it odd that Clark Ashton Smith is not officially included in the Appendix N. And in two of the three basic uh, basic box sets for Dungeons and Dragons, two of the three of them came with a little section that had literary suggestions. This is uh, Moldvay and Menser. Um, actually, I believe it's no, it's Holmes and Moldvay. Holmes and Moldvay, gotcha. Uh, is that right? Uh, Moldvay for sure. I can't remember if it's Menser or not. Um, but I'm with Hoy on that one. I don't, yeah. I'm not sure. Yeah. I'm, I'm forgetting which of the two yeah. of the three it is on the top of my head. And I'm, yeah. I, I, next time I will do my research better. However, in both of those, Clark Ashton Smith is cited, but he is not cited in the appendix set. And many people see this as an oversight. Do you think that Gygax just forgot to include him? Or do you think that he was intentionally left out potentially for the very perverse nature of his writings? I would go with the latter, actually. No, I would yeah. too. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Gygax was a very... You know, Christian man, he was a family man. Um, I mean, obviously, he wasn't above sort of putting a little sort of PG-13 in his writings. But this is this is beyond NC-17 stuff. Mm-hmm. I think he was a Jehovah's Witness at one point in his life or something like that. So that's definitely – this would be beyond the pale for yes. anybody who was – yeah. Yeah, and there's definitely racy stuff in the Appendix N, but I, I, I'm with I'm with Andy on this. Yeah. This is This is beyond racy. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Also, you know, his co-Greyhawk DM, uh, Robert J. Kuntz, um, was a huge fan of, of Clark Ashton Smith. And, you know, his Garden of the Plant Master is clearly a nod to the Garden of Andamfa mm. from this short story collection. And, uh, you know, maybe he was just giving his his buddy, protege, a little space there. I don't know. Maybe that'd be a question for Mr. Kuntz himself. Yeah, possibly. One thing I, I was really surprised reading this. You know, I, I I had not read the Dying Earth books before I started this project, mm-hmm. and I was so impressed by just the sheer like imagination of the Dying Earth, and I did not realize how much of it comes from Zothique. Mm-hmm. I mean, in Zothique, you've got the the red bloated sun, you've got these strange little towns where nobody knows what's happening in the next kingdom over. There's a lot of parallels between. Zothique and and the dying earth, and I I wasn't really expecting that. Can I, can I read the first uh, couple of sentences from the Dark Eidolon? Yes, please. Thank that you. Directly mm-hmm. on Zothique, the last continent of Earth, the sun no longer shone with the whiteness of its prime, but was dim and tarnished, as if with a vapor of blood. New stars without number had declared themselves in the heavens, and the shadows of the infinite had fallen closer. I mean, how mm-hmm. delicious is that? Uh, yeah, it's gorgeous. And the setting is so similar to Dying Earth. The The tone of it is very different. Definitely. Because the tone of the first Dying Earth book is very kind of whimsical. Fun There's loving. definitely 
Yeah, it is. It, there, there's definitely darkness in there, but it's all very still kind of very whimsical. Eyes of the Overworld is comedic, but very darkly, darkly comedic. Right. And 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 there's definitely cruelty there, but it's a cruel, it's a it's a cruel kind of comedy. Right. I would say the difference, and, and you know, to bring it back around to necrophilia because we have to, is that <laughs> <laughs> in Jack Vance's work, there's still flesh on the bones, and this is like yeah. right just to the mummified flesh, just to the bones. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So that's that's or to sometimes me. right at the point of super wet corruption. Like right. that's also a, a common theme that keeps coming up too. Is sure, like sure. waiting until the corpse is just like just perfect, ripe, yeah. perfectly <laughs> ripe. Yeah. Also, let's not forget that Clark Ashton Smith was pen pals with H.P. Lovecraft. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, I think he really looked up to Lovecraft, and as we know, Lovecraft was sort of very parochial in his own way and i think ashton smith you know fancied himself like the young rebel protege and you know lovecraft really had the lid on that sort of weird cosmic horror i think this was his way of you know taking it to the hoop in a different direction mm-hmm. i think also a couple other things i mean i don't I'm, you know we're loath to psychoanalyze people who are long dead and you know that's maybe not a good I'm thing, not. but he, yeah, <laughs> so I, we'll I go there. Let's uh, but he was obviously he was caring for his sick parents at this point Correct. in life. So there's obviously sort of like body horror and stuff like that that maybe Lovecraft is not as comfortable with. Yeah, death on the mind, sure. I get the sense also this is where actually Clark Ashton Smith and Gary Gygax do have something in common is that they both are very smart, self educated men, mm-hmm. and so I think that tendency to throw all these words at there, he, he, you know, you recombine these thoughts when you're sort of self-educated in a way that you wouldn't necessarily if you went through a more structured educational system. He's, so, he's almost like a naive artist, except incredibly educated, but self-educated. Man, That's- man that, that really resonates with me. Hoy. I, in fact, you know, some of my favorite musicians are the ones who are self-taught or have no sort of formal training. Smith, in his own way, I, I think he was only educated up to fifth grade or something like that. And But he sort of famously read Encyclopedia's whole class and di- digested dictionaries and he was obviously a wordsmith unparalleled right right and i think he taught himself french i mean he definitely has some francophilia in addition to necrophilia in terms of oh. his stories <laughs> yeah i mean Averwanya is essentially you know fantasy france right yeah so it regularly comes up that uh clark ashton smith should be included in the appendix n so i'm gonna ask the question why 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 do people feel like it is an omission that clark ashton smith was not included what about zothique and his writings, do people feel like inspired the creation of D&D or inspire our fantasy role-playing today? I think because it's so fucking metal. It's like it, it, the, the descriptions are so exciting and they feel like gameplay and they feel like the way we wished that our characters were protagonists in these strange stories that we tell at the tables. Like Smith brings me there personally in ways that I can't you know, replicate at the table or I strive to replicate at the table. Yeah, I think there's that. I think there's uh, – I don't want to say that it's the, that hipster element, but it's so clearly not generic high fantasy. Yes. Right? Nothing and vanilla. Right. And so we can just say, hey, you know, you've listened to that, but have you, you, know, have you listened to this album? Have you read this book? You know, so it's sort of for like the, the cognoscenti. And so people who are already into Appendix N are already going maybe a, a little deeper dive than people who just show up at the table every week. And to go that next level and say, oh, here's something that's not on Appendix N but yeah. should be, right? Yeah, and it's definitely for your Lamentations of the Flame Princess style kind of mature right. mature gamer. There's tons of DCC in there too, just right. the sort of the over-the-top gonzo stuff for sure. 
sure. Oh, of course, of course. I think DCC tries to still keep it very family friendly for the most part. You as a judge can make it as nasty and filthy as you want to, but That's actually right. right off the page, it's there's nothing implicitly adult about the content in most DCC adventures, I would say. But, but there is something implicitly unique about everything they want. As, yes. you know, each monster is, is, is its own entity. Each magic item mm-hmm. is the magic item, etc. Yeah. Oh, no doubt about that. I agree with that completely. Right. You know, it's, it's popular to call Clark Ash and Smith, Robbie D. Howard and, and Lovecraft sort of the big three of the mm-hmm. weird tales. I don't know if they thought of themselves that way, but each one of them brings something um, their own unique facets, and so it, it helps balance out the game, right? Howard is by no means anti-intellectual. I mean, people tend to think of him as just like, you know, the, the stereotypical Schwarzenegger barbarian, but <laughs> he's clearly bringing the sort of the action part of, you know, classic pulp fiction and therefore to D&D. You know, Lovecraft brings the cosmicism, but I think in a sense of, in a certain sense of the world building is where Clark Ashton Smith excels. Oh, yeah, so he sure, he, he know, really brings the, the weird. Yeah. And yeah. so, and I, I think whereas uh, Howard brings you know strong protagonists, much much like Liber did, there are really no re- you know standout protagonists in any of these short stories. I mean, some of them are cool and fun, but they don't last or carry over from story to story. It's the setting that is front row and center. Mm-hmm. Well, they hardly survive the stories. Oh my God! If they're lucky, there. This is a case study in things that are worse than death here in Zothique. Absolutely, I think a really great example is in Necromancy and Not. The, the story is about a guy who is searching after his great love and can't find her, finds out she's been stolen and taken away to the Isle of Knot, where, where we've already discussed that's where the necromancers live. She died. She's already been, she's already been reanimated. She's mm-hmm. now serving somebody. But in the end of the story, his happy ending is that he's now also dead and also reanimated. So in some way, he kind of gets to spend the rest of his eternity with her. It is dark. Doubling down on the darkness at the end of empire of necromancers don't all the reanimated dead rebel on their masters and Mm -hmm. then kill themselves in the ultimate what are they second death for their you know they crave the eternal peace of eternal rest yeah they all jump into the fires at the center of the earth so that they can't be brought back a second time so it's pretty incredible but but before before hacking up the uh the necromancers and then leaving them eternally alive like just heads they can't move around yeah their their quartered parts are just sort of squirming and crawling for all eternity yep and they resealed off the that that area so they could so that the necromancers couldn't also have that final death right right that sounds like uh the the introduction to uh, lamentations of the flame princess module like that's that's where the adventure begins there at the end of (laughs) necromancer uh empire of the necromancers (laughs) One OSR game slash game setting that I know very specifically cites Clark Ashton Smith as a source of inspiration is Astonishing Swordsmen and Sorcerers of Hyperborea. Favorite. Love it. Yeah, it's a fantastic setting. And they even reference uh, how... The oceans. What what do they say here about the the end the edge of the world? That they fall off the edge of the world in some way. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, that the oceans just pour off the edge of the world, which is absolutely I know true in Hyperborea. Are right. you guys familiar enough with the game to speak to it's more? It's like the North Pole, right? It's the disc. It's like a disc shaped world, mm-hmm. right? I haven't played that system yet. Flat dying Earthers unite. <laughs> <laughs> Kyrie Irving can come and play D anD D with us. <laughs> and also, there's a really strong uh, examples of patrons, Dungeons and uh, Dungeon Crawl Classics patrons in here, and specifically like a patron bond. Because, you know, in Dungeon Crawl Classics, 
if you want to align yourself with a patron, you have to cast a spell called Patron Bond. There's this great passage on page 17 where somebody's doing exactly that. They're trying to make a bond with this uh, with 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 the Lord of all evil, and uh, he says the Satan is the master of all sorceries and a giver of magic gifts to those who serve him and acknowledge him as their Lord. Pledge your allegiance, promise your soul to him, and in fee thereof, the demon will surely reward you. He can wake again the buried past with his necromancy. And then Zethra says, I accept the bond. Oh, so good. I mean, there is patron bond incarnate. <laughs> there you go. And um, the necromancer in... Um, the, the super powerful necromancer. Uh, Namira. Um, which one is yeah. that? Namira. Dark Idol, right? Yeah, and Dark right. Idol, yeah. Right, so he he bonds with the Sadon, but then he decides that the Sadon is not giving him all he wants, so he bonds with even darker unnamed powers. Uh, Thamagorgos. Thamagorgos. Yes. The Lord right. of the did, Abyss. Didn't they say that uh, Namira considered himself to be the equal of Thaisadon? Right, right, right. <laughs> I talk about hubris. Right, right. Love it. <laughs> What was it, Thassagorga? It is Thamagorgus. Thamagorgus. That's so good. <laughs> True names. Um, speaking of Thessadon, I was reading a little bit about him. Apparently, this was the inspiration behind the Greyhawk deity of chaos and entropy called Tharizdun. Ooh. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. But I mean, in this one, he's more like a demon, Lord of the Seven Hells or whatever. Uh, it's much more Lovecraftian, poured it over into the world of Greyhawk setting. But there's a direct line, I guess, via Robert J. Koontz once again. But I'm no scholar. I'm just a fan. There you go. Yeah. Aren't we all? So while you guys are reading this, did you guys, while you're reading this for the first time or refamiliarizing yourself with this after a long time away from it, was there stuff that you read and you're like, oh man, I want to include that in, in an upcoming game? So many things. Um, you know, what springs to mind, I like the, the, the trek across the desert by the necromancers. And I love how, I, I love the thought of, uh, I had a necromancer in my Tuesday New York City group for a long time. And uh, I wish I'd reread Empire of the Necromancers in time because the thought of like either a party full of necromancers or a duo of necromancers just doing necro things across deserts and necropoli is such a fun concept, at least for a mini campaign to me. I mean, I would have definitely loved to have done something similar to that. Mm-hmm. That's definitely uh, harkens back to uh, Gavin Norman's book, you know, the- Theorems of Thaumaturgy. And, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I guess the Vivid Mancer is more Dying Earth, but this, I guess Theorems of Thaumaturgy has Necromancers too in there, right? I think, and hopefully, hopefully he'll give it a more expanded treatment at, the, at some point. Uh, as I mentioned before, that some of them actually feel like games. The Weaver in the Vault has the three sort of uh, King's henchmen, uh, Yanur, Grotara, and Thurlane Ludok. Adventuring party. Clearly an adventuring party, and that uh, one of them has decided that the youngest and hugest of the three, being taller by a full head than Yanner or Thurlane Murdoch, uh, sorry, Ludok. Um, and the other ones have a, you know, uh, black and spade-shaped beard. So I like that they're depicting them, but not sort of like these sort of Nordic heroes. They're definitely more sort of uh, Middle Eastern or, or Arabic-looking heroes. I also love that the monster in The Weaver in the Vault only eats dead things. So I love the idea of potentially having in your game, in your dungeon, this like hovering kind of incorporeal monster that's just waiting for you to die so it can Death eat vacuum. you as soon yeah. as you're dead. <laughs> that's way cool in the gelatinous cube. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the other adventuring party is in the Black Ab of Puthum, and it's Zobal mm-hmm. the Archer and Kushara the Pike Bearer. 
mm-hmm. and they definitely and they have magic arrows and they have and the one guy turns down a magic pike he goes oh no my pike is good enough for me right? yeah i don't need that i'll stick with my family pike right and uh, they actually <laughs> describe the armor that they're wearing this time he's got bronze armor and he's got a horse that's armored with scale armor um so that's pretty evocative my favorite thing about those dudes is that they're they're they speak in like high old English, like they're almost like intellectual warriors and they're highly moralistic. At the end, they fall in love by charm uh, for the, uh, with the woman that they rescued and they, they, draw, they draw for her. <laughs> they, they put the demon's claws in a, in a helmet and shake for it and they're like, you know, let the best man win. The funniest thing is that they do that and then she goes, yeah. she wakes up and she goes, what are you doing? He yeah. goes, neither of you has consulted my preference in this matter. And, and she then, makes the choice. Right, so then, then pouting prettily, she makes the choice. It's hilarious. <laughs> Although I was a little annoyed with her in that moment, though, because because she yeah because she ended up choosing the one who didn't win. Right. But yep. I feel like if I had been her and I had found out that the man I was interested in was going to let the other man have me from a draw of lots, I would have been like, well, I would have picked you, but not anymore. Take me yeah. home. <laughs> well that that kind of touches on yeah i, I know in, in some of your other episodes you've discussed sort of you know light misogyny sort of latent racism or t- yeah. racism of the time this uh book and all of smith's uh works are you know certainly you know they they beyond dabble in light racism for oh sure, absolutely yeah. it's not to the degree of lovecraft but sort of on the level of howard for sure mm-hmm. and i was emotionally prepared for howard and lovecraft i actually had never heard anybody mention it about clark ashton smith before so i was really surprised when suddenly we had these depictions of these black characters and every single time you have a black character they are either monstrous, disgusting, hideous, or they're babbling idiots. Yep. Yeah. It's weird. It's almost like, uh, you know, black and evil are synonymous to this very cloistered, uh, self-educated man. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to observe. Um, I will say, and, and there's no denying any of those things, but the, at least he makes attempt to make them interesting. Like, so again, the black abbot, put through sure. him, so he's a black villain. He's half demon, right? He's, but he's an interesting character, right? There's, there's, there's intelligence a That's dark true. intelligence yeah. there. And it's the same with the various like witch characters and and like the even some of the consorts like was it Obia or or um I'm trying to mispronouncing her name in um in some Dark Idols in Eidolon, who is the um the consort of the um the king. And so they they have interesting, you know, not necessarily nice motivations, but they're sort of well drawn in a moment. Uh which sure. is maybe more uh, you know, more than Lovecraft was ever able to do. Let's put it that way. So, by the way, I, that that black that black abbot, I think I'm convinced was the template for the ogre mage D and D. Although I'm probably incorrect about that historically, he just reminded me so much of the ogre mage. Right. Mm. Enormous with big sharp teeth and so, yeah. Yeah, 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 definitely has that. Yeah, feeling. smart. And, yeah. yeah, I would agree with some of what you've said, Hoy, but I would really disagree with in the last hieroglyph. Because Mausda, the the slave who he, the one eyed slave who he hires, really like basically the the astrologer is walking around with his dog and his slave, and mm. oftentimes the dog and the slave are described as about being of equal intelligence, and he even talks about how like you know he named the slave Mausda because that's just like the color for dark in his language. <laughs> Oh, um, like and and and, every, and everything about the way that that character is described is just completely. Oh, I don't even know what word I'm looking for. Well, just it's definitely degrading. Uncle very, uh, it's degrading. Yeah, Sambo yeah. type character in that one. There's just yeah. no, no no doubt in that case. Yeah, and the dog actually has more characterization in that story. There's no doubt. 
Yeah. Speaking of degrading, I think in the Isle of, of Torturers, I mean, there is so much degradation going on there. Not only is there physical torture, but there's sort of purposefully inflicted mental anguish on a scale that my mind, at least at the time my first reading, was not capable of comprehending. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. The Isle of the Torturers, they do not disappoint. Right. Uh, they he's, live up oof, to their name. Right. He's living in the aquarium and he just sort of sees all the corpses that's just dropped in the, of the people he knows, like dropped into the water next to him. You know, the the, uh, the protagonist and then the and the, the and, and he thinks he's going to be rescued right. by this, you know, comely woman who's like, I got you. And she's kind of like, but play the long game. I'll you know, we're going to work this out together. It turns out she's chief among the torturers. Mm-hmm. But ultimately it avails them not because his his uh, revenge or sense of justice actually takes care of them also, even though he yeah. had, he dies in the story. So, yeah, absolutely. And in, in, in that story, two entire kingdoms are decimated by a plague from the stars. Right. Yes. First, the kingdom that he comes from, and he's got this magic ring that protects him from it. And then when he takes the magic ring off while he's being tortured in the final scene, it then destroys that whole kingdom. And one thing that I think is kind of cool about that, that I think would be really neat to bring into your gaming is, and also with these stories in general, you constantly, you're in one of the stories, you'll be in a city. And then in the next story, you hear about how they reference that city as being like a long decimated, desolate, empty place. And I feel like it's, it's, it's a reminder that in your own campaign world to let the world change and change dramatically and drastically, like let an entire kingdom be decimated by a plague yeah. from the stars, because now when the characters go back to that, it's something completely different. Especially when that plague from the stars is catalyzed by one of the PCs, yes. like it is in that story. Mm-hmm. Super rad. Yeah. And I, actually, you mentioned this. Uh, this is also a case where we have to give Lynn Carter some credit. You know, it's popular to, you know, to bag on him, but he actually sort of tried to organize the stories in sort of some sort of internal chronology, which is not necessarily apparent. You could just read these stories as individual sort of, as you say, prose poems and not draw the connections. But the way he sort of organized the stories, it, it helps you to draw those connections, mm-hmm. uh, which might not be evident if you just did them in publication order. In- yeah, I've got another Zothik I'm showing you guys, but we're on an yeah. audio podcast. But I've got another thing from Necronomicon Press, mm-hmm. and they, they publish them in chronological order. This is the first that I ever read. Chronological stories. in terms of publication? I assume so. Yeah, and it's got a few additional uh, titles in here. But the, the point is uh, they resonated with me uh, far better in this Ballantine production. Uh, I mean, uh, publication when I read them in this order, in Lynn Carter's order. The Lynn Carter introduction is also a really solid introduction. I feel like it was a – being somebody who didn't know much about Clark Ashton Smith, I felt like I walked away from that very short introduction with what I needed to know. And without the sort of um, sense of condescension that, like, say, an Elsbrag de Camp sometimes does when he introduces, you know, uh, the fiction that he likes. Because I, I don't ever feel like Lynn Carter thinks of himself as above the stuff that he's presenting. And then Elsbrag de Camp sometimes has that vibe, mm. you know, for – uh, both of them deserve an enormous amount of credit for keeping this fiction in front of us. But, uh, you know, everybody brings a little bit of baggage with themselves, so – so there was a one little moment in, I believe it was in Necromancy and Not, where one of the characters is uh, knocked over. and Or maybe that was in The Master of Crabs. I'm not sure. At some point, they're at sea, and a character is knocked over and drowns because they don't know how to swim. So I have a question for you guys. Do all PCs always know how to swim? <laughs> wow well i guess you know it depends uh depends who you're asking what right. system you're running right. and your style of gameplay right. right? i'm, as- I'm asking you guys don't knock me off a boat um <laughs> i would say 
that it i think it's very setting dependent if you were going to run a game that was set in the steppes of central asia then i would not make that assumption right or something similar setting right i would give them though the assumption that they all can ride well right um so that or you know if you were set in the you know the empty quarter of the arabian desert Mm -hmm. right but otherwise i would assume and there's a tendency to assume literacy in a lot of cases unless it's explicitly said you know that your intelligence is too low or something like that so i would normally give them the ability to swim but, you know, give the high difficulties if it's, you know, raging waters or whatever. But <laughs> sure, that's that's my that's my uh, take on it. But you could say, yeah, if you're a tiger nomad or, a, a, you know, something that for World of Greyhawk, maybe you don't know how to swim. So. <laughs> it's, it's nice uh, Planes of the Paynims reference. Yeah, there. I'm impressed. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But Jeff, you know my answer. You've played in some of my games. Essentially, I would say if you're from a culture near water, you would just make it just a direct stat check. And uh, if you weren't, I'd... Uh, I'd nerf you by half, roll under <laughs> half. And I would like to say to anybody who's listening, if you had the opportunity to play in an Andy action game, do it because he is a badass dungeon master slash judge. Well, back, at you, back at you, handsome. Yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate and, that. Um, yeah, because you played at my tables as well. And actually, Andy, you actually pretty, pretty frequently put out open calls for, for the various online games that you're doing, right? You know, on G+, right? Is that correct? I do, yeah. The, you know, the attrition rate of players in a weekly game, you know, is mighty high. So there are always uh, slots opening at my myriad tables. All right. So look for him at G. Look for him on G plus. Yeah. So oh, that's Andy Action on G plus. Andy way. Action on G plus. Perfect. Perfect. So. I feel like this story. I mean, there's there's so much more we haven't discussed. I mean, there's there's more Digian, the the oh, corpse eating so cool. god. <laughs> there's proto uh, proto Neril. I love him. Another thing I thought was great were the vampires mm-hmm. in this story. The vampire birds in the last one. The uh, yes, yeah. they go to that one island and they're these like f- they're like these flying beasts who come down and basically like start like sucking out everything from the inside of these people and just kind of like leave these husks and then they're just like oh yeah those are vampires. <laughs> it's like that's not what I think of when I think of the word vampire. Which again, like I love when. When these, I love how these stories surprise us, and how just because they use the word vampire, it doesn't necessarily right. mean that they're using that they're using the monster that we have all post Dungeons and Dragons agreed on what a vampire is. Right? Yeah, it's no Nosferatu, uh, Clark Ashton Smith's reskinning of the vampire. And what is that from? That's the Voyage of King King Yvonne. Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. That's also got where the, he goes to the Bird Kingdom. In the end, and the birds actually taxidermy the humans, which is hilarious. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> It's so good. And one thing I think is funny is the reason why he lost half of his crew and went to that island. Like he could, him and the crew from a distance could tell there was no way in hell the bird they were looking for was on that island. But because he was being a completist, he insisted on looking there anyways, lost half of his group. And it reminds me of when the the PCs have accomplished their mission in the dungeon, (laughs) but refuse to leave. Right. There might be one more gold piece. There might be one more gold piece in another corner. And it's like, well, maybe if... If you want to be an evil judge, maybe they uncover something really, truly horrific that maybe wasn't even on the map (laughs) just to teach them the lesson that like maybe sometimes you just need to go when you've accomplished your mission. Completest PCs turn more TPKs than than non-completest PCs Mm -hmm. for sure. (laughs) So actually, I was this brings me up. I was running a game the other day. I was running uh, Daniel Bishop's uh, Creeping Beauties of the Wood Mm -hmm. and uh, it didn't end up having horrible consequences, but. And maybe I wonder if you do this, Andy. I actually, once they had com- accomplished the mission, I didn't cut. I actually had them have to come back to civilization and encounter any wandering monsters on the way back. Mm-hmm. That might Look happen. You. you know, they they were okay, but it could have gone really badly for them. You know, on the way back. So that's that's um, you know, if you have time, I like to do that. You know? Sure, you know, that's great. Campaign play. Anyone who games in my campaigns knows that. 
I will let the dice dictate which, uh, you know, who's going to encounter them on the way and on the way back and everywhere in between. Uh, you know, I, I don't like to make the decisions. I let the dice decide. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. Another thing I really liked about Zothik is there are all of these places where there's all this superstition around why you shouldn't go to this place because of X. And mm. the thing is, like, everybody's, like, always super afraid of these places. And the people who go there – Almost always when they go there, the thing that they were told not to go there for that for that reason is exactly happens. what happens. <laughs> and I think sometimes with Dungeons and Dragons, we pepper in so many so many fake rumors, false rumors. That yeah. like it, I think it can kind of foster a sense of like, oh, I'll be fine. It's not that bad. Right. I I think it might be fun to start yeah. foreshadowing by saying by actually telling them the exact awful thing that actually might yeah. await them if they go there and they go there and they see exactly that. You know, your players are just going to like hate you and, <laughs> and maybe, maybe in a good way. I just don't know. Like, it just depends on who you're playing with. Just don't play with the kind of person who's going to kick over the table, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I think players, they like to dread in advance. Foreshadowing with true things really works. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, Pre-dread. I guess just don't like go like, hey, I told you so. That's the main thing. Don't, don't sure. be a bad no. sport as the GM. Oh, yeah. Don't be a dick about it. Right. Nobody likes a gloating GM for sure. Yeah. Sure. So before uh, we wrap up, are there any kind of last things that you guys want to discuss about Zothique? Uh Find this book if you can. Um, you know, I mean, this I think is the best way to read it. You know, I mean, I know there's a complete Clark Ashton Smith thing from Nightshade, and but that's like almost too much at once, right? And I know the Penguin Collection doesn't have all these stories, uh, the current Clark Ashton Smith. So it's, it's kind of a little bit hard to find him like in a sort of digestible form at the moment. I'd I'd like to say, you know, this is just one of many uh, collections of very noteworthy Clark Ashton Smith books. I absolutely adore this one, but uh, you know, uh, Hyperborea is an amazing collection. Uh, What's the other one? We got Zikarf. Mm -hmm. Zikarf and Poseidonus, right? Poseidonus, right? Those are the other, I guess, Lynn Carter compiled Ballantine uh, paperbacks, but you know, there are so many works and they're all available I believe they're in public domain. Um, I guess the the website where they're all collected is poetry, prose, and short stories are all at eldritchdark.com. And I also really highly recommend an entire podcast that's dedicated to the writings of Clark Ashton Smith. Unfortunately, they only covered, I think, two or three from the Zothique cycle. But uh, they're called The Double Shadow. Uh, They're either on hiatus or permanent hiatus now. But they have numerous episodes. And they're great uh, chemistry between the hosts. And they really dive in quite deeply. And it's it's also fun. They, They don't take themselves too seriously. The Double gonna, Shadow. Yeah, I'm going to second that. I've only heard one other episode, but I'm going to definitely second that recommendation. I've not listened. I've not heard of yeah. this this and, podcast. Um, I'll check it out. Yeah, and I think it's the one neat. the one shame is that the Valentine Adult Fantasy series, you know, was canceled. So, um, you know, Lynn yeah. Carter never got a chance to do an Avaronia, uh compilation. And that was that right. was that was slated, right? That was slated for the list. So, but those stories are readily available, and I highly recommend them, especially if anyone grew up loving X2 Castle Amber and was always like either too lazy or intimidated to create the Averwania section, go ahead, read those stories, flesh out the campaign map and run it. I did this about three years ago for my Tuesday New York group and it was so fun. We made maybe 25 sessions uh, from just a few paragraphs in that original module. And by reading and fleshing out the, uh, the Clark Ashton Smith setting, we had endless fun. So of Zothique, Hyperborea, Poseidonus, Zikarf, and Averion, do you have a favorite? Well, I've spent so much time in Averion, or Averion, uh, but I, man, 
I gotta say, Zothique with all the necro rape is so much fun. <laughs> Perfect. I think that's a great note to take right. off on. We'll definitely have to have it, have you back on for more Clark Ash and Smithness at some point. Yes, thank you so Anytime. much, Andy. It's a blast having Anytime. you here. Anytime, fellows. Much love. So we've got some great episodes coming up. Episode 23 is going to be on H.P. Lovecraft's At the Mountains of Madness and Other Tales of Terror. And episode 24 is going to be on J.R.R. Tolkien's The Fellowship of the Ring. Very cool. Very cool. Look for us on uh, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and all the usual places that you get your podcasts. If you want to uh, check out our show notes and learn more about what we do, you can look at appendixandbookclub.com. If you want to get in touch with us for any reason. You can tweet at us at appendix underscore n or email us at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com. Perfect. Uh, well, Andy, thank you so much for joining us. This has been a blast. Thank you, Andy. Thank you, Jeff and Hoy. I really appreciate it. Great times. Okay. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed. <laughs>